Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Elevation Podcast, presented by the Colorado PGA. I'm your host, Holly Champion. I'm joined by PGA Master Professional Andy Hiltz of Andy Hiltz Golf. Now, if you've tuned in to televised golf tournaments between 1995 and 2010, you've most likely listened to our distinguished guest. We're joined by PGA Master Professional Bobby Clampett. After a spectacular amateur and collegiate career, he transitioned to the PGA Tour and later the Champions Tour. In the mid-90s, he became a commentator for CBS and Turner Sports. After his illustrious time in the booth, Clampett has shifted his focus to teaching the game of golf using his proven strategies to improve impact position for golfers of all swing types. We'll also hear some of his stories surrounding his relationship with Arnold Palmer, his favorite memory, and many more anecdotes from his experience in the game. Join me now for this episode of the Elevation Podcast. Bobby Clampett, Andy Hiltz, thank you both for joining us for this Elevation podcast episode talking about impact zone golf. Um, Bobby, it's a true pleasure to have you on with Andy and I. Um, why don't you kick us off and just share a little bit about your golf journey and the path that you've taken to get where you are. Well, thank you, Holly. It's great to be with you and Andy. And of course, Andy and I have been friends for several years now, so who knows where this thing's going to go. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to make any apologies right now because uh, it's just the way it is. But a little bit about my golfing background. I grew up uh, right here where I am right now in Carmel, California. This is my home. Fell in love with the game at the age of 10 at Quail Lodge. Was first uh, taught by Lee Martin, who was the head pro at Quail Lodge. And Ben Doyle became the director of instruction when I was 13. And I was immediately after six months of starting golf when I was 10, I started playing competitively. I just loved it. And I couldn't get enough of it. I went to the Stevenson School, Robert Louis Stevenson School in Pebble Beach, and, of course, played on the golf team there. My golf game continued to improve. Uh, won my first national junior tournament, the Big Eye, when I was 15. That was kind of a real pivotal moment for me in my junior career. And then I uh, set the all-time point record in Northern California when I was 16, broke it when I was 17, won the state junior and the Northern Cal junior, and decided to skip a year of high school and go to college a year early. So I went to Brigham Young University, was the first team All-American my first year as a 17-year-old, and then I won the Haskins Trophy my last two years. So I was 19 when I left college and turned pro and joined the tour. Uh, played uh, first year on tour, finished 14th in the official money list on the PGA Tour, had four second-place finishes, did not win. Second year, I got my first win at the Southern Open. And had a couple other second place finishes, uh, finished, I think, 17th on the money list the second year. Third year, I kind of got off to a bit of a slow start and I got talked into maybe I should go seek the advice of the so-called best teachers in the game. And so I started to reach outside of Ben Doyle, who had been my coach for all those years uh, with the golfing machine and began to explore uh, what other coaches might have to say. And it was really interesting that the coaches wanted to change my swing. And I started to do that with one of them. 
and started the process of completely revamping my golf swing. And the bottom line was I never broke the top 80 ever again. Led to a broadcasting career. Yeah, I was 15 years full-time with CBS, uh, 29 years in total. And during that process, I wrote a book called The Impact Zone. And it was really the amalgamation of my history as a golfer uh, being taught by style-based uh, teachers and the, the idea of always changing your swing style. Meanwhile, I had been playing with uh, so many of the guys on the PGA Tour with strange swings. You know, Lee Trevino had a very strange swing. I remember one time reading an article in Golf Digest about Lee Trevino, and the title of the article was Seven Wrongs Make a Miraculous Right. <laughs> so it was uh, – and this is the way golf was taught uh, by through style-based methods, and we still see it today. So I developed a new approach uh, about uh, – and we call it impact-based instruction and outlined it in the impact zone. Had no intention of going into the teaching business. It was just something I felt needed to be said in the industry. And slowly, uh, people, well, not slowly, people, coaches started calling, emailing, writing letters, and wanted to be certified. And so immediately afterwards, uh, this was in 2000, the book was written in 2007 and 2008. We incorporated Impact Zone, licensed everything, and started a certification program. And we've been off and running ever since, uh, even though I did go back to the Champions Tour when I turned 50 and played five years, 87 events out there, and decided to invest um, my earnings back into improving golf instruction. So that's kind of where we are. So I'm, I'm curious, and I, I know a little bit of the story here too, Bobby, but, uh, and I, I guess I liken your five dynamics to, I'll call it the fundamentals, right? And, and the PDA has a fundamental, you know, I always remember gas, you know, grip, aim, stance, and posture, or just gas, so grip, aim, stance as the fundamentals. And then getting certified stack and tilt, they've got their 10 words as kind of their fundamentals. And I guess I, I liken your five dynamics to the fundamentals. And how did, I would say, how did you, come up with those dynamics, if you will. Well, so the, the whole essence of impact-based teaching is we work from impact backwards. We really don't care if you're a stack and tilt swing, a one-plane swing, two-plane, A swing, gravity golf swing, natural golf swing, square-to-square -square swing. I don't care. Uh, show me what you're doing at impact and what you're creating an impact, and we'll work backwards from that. So it's really more the approach that tour players take uh, in trying to – approach their game. We don't have, as tour players, we don't have time to really remold our swings most of the time. We just want to play better because mm -hmm. we got to put food on the table to uh, feed our kids by our scores. And so we got to play better. And so when I looked at, at how to, um, Andy Brummer had been uh, a longtime friend and, and had been approaching me for many years says, you know, you and I need to write a book together. And I said, I don't know what to do, Andy. I don't want to write a book. And so one day I was, uh, I just started, uh, accepted a, a coaching position of my son Daniel's um, mid middle school golf team. And so I'm teaching 10-year-olds uh, how to play. And I've been working on my impact. And um, a lot of what Johnny Miller and I had talked about early on 
in in our my early years as Johnny was like a big brother to me and I had been teaching them um, you know flat lead wrist and I've been talking looking at the where the bottom of the swing should be and I had been studying how the pros on the tour my work with CBS had always compressed the ball and it made a certain sound so I did a study on swing bottom and found that on average, their bottom of their swing arc was four inches in front of the ball. So I did a long study on that and started teaching that. And then I started looking, well, how do I get these kids to get into that flat lead wrist forward swing bottom position? And then I came up with the loading on the backswing, lagging on the downswing, delivering it with the workhorse, and then delivering the club down a straight plane line. So the five dynamics are the first two, flat lead wrist, four inch in front swing bottom, then it gets into how do you accomplish that. Loading the club on the backswing is simply hinging of the wrist, and then lagging is what you do with that load. So lag is a quantity or a quality. And then how you deliver that lag is what we call ground force activation or the workhorse. And we want to deliver the club down a straight plane line. So the straight plane line is the fifth dynamic. Um, of that. So the workhorse is not a dynamic contrary to what a lot of people want. That would make it six. So it's flat lead wrist, four inch in front, swing bottom, load, lag, and straight plane line. I found that really interesting that I, I love that you bring that from impact zone out. So you really can use that with any kind of swing plane. That was one of the things that I had when I went to college is the first thing that my coach did was put me into an impact position or a not an impact position, a position at the top that I was like beyond uncomfortable with. I'd never done it. And I was, I had only had one coach similar to you that I grew up with, just kind of a small town country club golf professional that taught me from the age of five. And I was like, I, I don't, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to do with my body when you put me in such a different position. And I ended up not doing it, which it kind of worked out because there was a coach change at that time. But I, I really find that fascinating. You can do that with anyone's swing. I love that you don't try to change somebody. Well, my belief is the less you have to change, the better, because we're all reluctant to change and we all have our natural signature. It's kind of like the way, you know, in, in a lot of the Catholic schools, for example, in the old days, and they would teach you handwriting. And if you didn't, if your A's weren't exactly right, they would slap you with a ruler on the hand. Uh, it's kind of the way we're going about teaching golf. You know, it's like, hey, if you don't have perfect plane and a perfect face at the top of your backswing and your hips aren't turning 37.8 degrees and your hips are, are you know, turning 66.3 degrees, then you're not in the right position. So slap, you know, you can't you can't play golf from there. Meanwhile, you got the Bryson DeChambeau's and the Matt Wolf's and the Jim Furyk's and the Bubba Watson's tearing up the world of golf best players in the world with these crazy ridiculous golf swings and thank god there was nobody there to slash them in the hand i mean mike fierce been a long time pga professional right and he kind of let his son jim go uh, with his natural weird swing which was really against the way of most uh, professionals right and he just basically taught him impact. And that's how Jim learned was ball flight and impact. One of the most consistent players in the PGA, in PGA Tour history. He's only made over $100 million playing golf. So 
<laughs> so, so we talk. So I'm gonna stand that money subjects for for a second. You've a pretty successful career, and you know certainly you don't need to be teaching golf at this point in time. So why are you wasting your time? I shouldn't say wasting your time, but uh, why are I you spending you your days teaching golf right now? Yeah. You know, I've been uh, I've had a lot of teachers say exactly that to me, Andy. You know, it's like, you know, you don't need to do this. It's like it's like going from a player to a caddy in, in a lot of people's minds. You know, it's like uh, you're going to be a golf instructor and a second rate citizen. No, um, here's here's here's. <laughs> Thanks for calling me a second rate citizen. I appreciate it. Well, you know, I'm one now, too. Right. So uh, that's a way that a lot of people view uh, golf instructors, and, and I don't obviously have that same viewpoint, otherwise I wouldn't be doing this. But the reality is that I'm very passionate about helping the game. I think that we've gone down as an industry down a wrong path for a really long time of trying to teach people by style of swing. And we're, we're not helping them as much as we could if we went down a path of teaching them what is proper impact and how to best get them there. And it simplifies things dramatically. And, you know, the ball goes right where you hit it every time. And it's the conditions that your swing creates an impact that sends it there. And the average golfer has no clue about what are their conditions that impact and they have no clue how to fix things. They don't know how to assess. They don't know how to correct. And they go down this uh, path of, you know, going on the Internet and looking at swing tips and picking up golf magazines and listening to the golf channel. And then they're going to uh, somebody for advice. And it's like it, 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 it doesn't make any sense. And, and they build their swing on a bunch of uh, sometimes even wrong suppositions of what they're trying to do. And it's no wonder that 4 million golfers quit in the game every year. And frustration is a huge part of why people are quitting the game. And it's really the foundation of why I do what I do, because if we can help people better understand their game and help them understand that golf is not an enigma or a mystery anymore, that you really do hit the ball right where you hit it every time. And it's the conditions of impact that sent it there. It's just a matter of understanding. Now, how many pro-ams have I played in? My God, played in thousands of pro-ams over the year. I played over 550 PGA Tour events in my career. And I've heard over and over again, people hit a shot, uh, amateurs in the pro-am hit a shot, and they go, why did I hit it over there? I felt like going up to him and saying, that's the stupidest comment I've ever heard because, of course, you hit it over there. Your impact made the ball go over there. Your path was this. Your face was this. You hit it this place on the club face. Your swing bottom wasn't where it was supposed to be. And the reason why you're so erratic is you got the biggest face-to-path deviation of any person I've ever seen. You're going to be the most inconsistent golfer on the planet because you don't know impact. That's why you hit it over there. So, you know, I get a little fired up at this. You can see. Couldn't tell. Couldn't, couldn't tell at all. Well, so I guess that's why, that's why I do what I do, Andy. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it's, uh, you know, what we're doing right now as golf instructors, I, w- I would argue, is one of the most important things to maintain the COVID boom. 
Like, I feel like we've got this great opportunity right now. You know, in my, I guess, almost 30 years now in the golf industry, this is the best thing I've seen since since Tiger came into the industry to to right the trend that we've been on for, you know, 20 plus years of just a steady, steady decline. And my goodness, if we can capture some of these people who are coming in to play the game for the first time and get them success and get them past that level of frustration with quality instruction, we have a fighting chance of finally maintaining, you know, the, the COVID boom and keeping people in the game uh, that we haven't been able to do for the last, well, for as long as I've been around. 100%. And there's over 10 million people right now wanting to learn how to play golf, and they don't know how to start. Yep. And we need, we need, first of all, we need to do a better job of teaching teachers. We need to do a better job of having programs that really do take a novice golfer and say, this is the best way to learn how to play golf and lead them down with trained instructors. Um, this is a big part of what I think is missing in the game today. And I heard one study say that uh, uh, 70% of the people who took lessons said they either got worse or didn't get any better. And that's a tragic tale to where we are in the industry. And it's uh, adding to this whole reason why we're having 4 million golfers quit every year. And golf is not that, it's a hard game, yes, but it's not a frustrating game if you know what you're doing and you understand impact. And that's really the difference. And what we're trying to do with Impact Zone Golf to help move people along and that's why we have a, a teacher certification program and we got our partner with Kaiser University now in their school of golf and we're trying to continue to grow uh, and grow the game and grow instructors to be more proficient and now we've got all this great technology my gosh this technology is fantastic I wish I had it all when I was playing because it just tells the story. It, you can be objective. You can measure. You can see exactly cause and effect one shot over the other. And it takes all the mystery away. And it gives you that biofeedback. Technology is the future. We've got to bring it in more. And too few instructors even use any technology. Well, it just helps make it so much easier from an education perspective. I had a, you know, been teaching here at Catamount Ranch all summer this summer. It's been awesome to get back on the lesson tee full time for me, having just taught coaches for so many years and not really been on the tee myself. And it's been, you know, enlightening to merge the tech into into simplification, right? I don't I don't want to make this technology confusing and crazy and like what are you talking about? But it's amazing you tie the technology to impact. And I had a guy yesterday using the flight scope, um, had no concept of path. Like what do you, like what do you mean path? And just putting yeah. that that number on the screen for him, you're 14 left. Like, what do you mean left? And he, he just didn't understand any of it. But once we spent some time talking about path and it creates the curve and the face and, you know, at the end of the lesson, it was fun to have him not even need to go look at the data. He knew, no, that was probably about six to the left on my path because it faded this much. And I'm like, yep, you were seven. It was close. So anyway, once they understand that concept using the technology, man, the, the learning curve can really begin to, to just, you know, be blown away. <laughs> totally blown away. I had a student yesterday, um, you know, and I've given him several lessons before, but we had a kind of a breakthrough moment yesterday. And he's got a very unusual swing. Uh, but, he, you know, 
big big cast from the top and breaks down. You ever see that? And yeah, you know, over the top move and doesn't hit it very far. And he's afraid to load it on the top of his backswing. He's like, no, I, I don't want to go there. And so we finally got him to load and keep it and then use the workhorse through. And his swing bottom went, moved an inch further forward. His path went from uh, three, degree, three to four degrees out to in to two degrees into out. And his face-to-path variations came down from about 14 degrees down to five. And he started, his club head speed went up three miles an hour. And his ball flight just was awesome. He was so thrilled. And all we're doing is improving his impact. And this is where we need to go with teaching is forget about positions and your posture to dress. And how, you know, I think about posture to dress. Uh, I played one round uh, one year I started the Champions Tour, and the first round of the, that season, I was paired with Jim Thorpe and Fuzzy Zeller. And you could not imagine two, three different golf swings in your life than mine, Fuzzy Zeller, and Jim Thorpe, right? <clears throat> different postures, different planes, different setups, completely different swings, and we all three shot 69. And it was just like very different ways to do it. But all of us were hit nice shots and played some pretty good golf. Talk, talk more about the years. Um, I guess I'll call it the swing bottom study. I know we've, I've heard you say a couple of times the four inch in front swing bottom is the deepest point of the divot. Lowest point. Of the swing. I know you did some um a little more work on that, didn't you? On studying on the, the higher handicap players. And what was, I, I can't remember, what was the, your findings? So I actually got my godson uh, back in the year 2005. Uh, he was in high school and I got him to do a science study and he went out to local public golf course in North Carolina, conducted the study over a couple month period of time, and got a hundred golfers, let them hit five shots <clears throat> and measured the swing bottom or the bottom of the arc, the bottom of the divot and all five shots. If they didn't take a divot, they let them hit another one, but got five, five divots. And then took out the worst shot, took out the best shot and figured out the average of the three mean shots and then asked them what their handicap was. So it was just to figure on swing bottom. And what we found now was interesting. It was like a straight line from where your swing bottom was and what your handicap was. So the low handicap golfers had a forward swing bottom. The pros have it roughly four inches in front. And the uh, amateurs were like the low handicap, like the scratch golfers were like two to three inches in front. And then, you know, the low handicappers were like an inch in front. And then it just started backing up. And when you looked at the whole whole hundred golfers ended up being four strokes of handicap per inch starting with the touring pros at four inches in front it would just start backing up now there's a relationship between path dynamic five and swing bottom that needs to be addressed so it's not a a perfect study by any means but it does 
kind of open your eye to the fact that if your swing bottom is not in front of the ball, how do you compress the ball? And when you hit the, as we say, the big ball before the little ball, nothing good ever happens. So you've got to be able to compress the ball and hit the ball on a downward uh, downward motion when you're hitting it off the ground, for sure. <laughs> impact zone golf for a second, and I'm going to uh, – I've got a lot of certifications, so I had TPI and Stack and Tilt and Master Professional, blah, 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 blah. Why should I get Impact Zone certified, Bobby? Well, if you want to learn how to teach Impact uh, and you want, you believe that teaching Impact is a better way of teaching golf than teaching style, then you're going to want to know everything about impact and you're going to be want to be an expert about impact, all the different aspects of impact. And you're going to want to know cause and effect, how to create better impact and how to measure and how to be objective. Unfortunately, most teachers, uh, when they teach, it's about opinions. It's subjective. You know, Mrs. Haverkamp, I think you need to be in this position at the top. I think you need to make this change of setup. And and this is, Andy, honestly, this was the, the fatal mistake I made when I was led to change my style of swing at the age of 23 and, and playing the tour. I should have asked the teachers, these changes you want me to make, how is that going to affect my impact? Can we measure those effects? And can we objectively work at this? And the answer, of course, would have been no, because we didn't have that kind of technology back then. But today we do have that technology and we can objectively measure. So to go back to the old days of teaching and be opinion based and subjective doesn't work in today's teaching environment. If you want to be a really good teacher and learn truly how to help people, because if you if you're improving their impact, you can see it, you can measure it and they can feel it and their scores go down. They're happier and it improves. You know, I had, uh, you know, I'll share with you, you know, you've helped, been a big help to me, Andy, in, in putting together uh, uh, coaching plans and, and kind of structuring my, my students. And I had uh, 12 of my annual students uh, came up for renewal after their first year this past year. And all 12 renewed their coaching plan, which is kind of crazy. So when you have when you're getting results, your students are improving. If they don't want to switch instructors, they don't want to leave. And guess what happens? Your referrals start to go up. So getting certified and understanding how to better teach and how to teach impact, because that's what really works, is going to help instructors with their referral rates. It's going to help instructors with their renewal rates. It's going to help them fill up their book of business. They're going to be able to raise their rates. They're going to be more successful as a coach. They're going to be happier as a coach, and their students are going to be happier. So that's just a few of the reasons why I think they should get certified. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Let me, uh, is it okay if I shift gears a little bit? 
You can shift gears any way you want to. Well, I, you know, you and I have spent a lot of time together. I've, uh, I've truly enjoyed getting to know you as a, as a friend, and I've enjoyed skiing with you as well. Yeah. I was on the peaks here last week, finally, for the first time, so I'm looking forward to uh, some, some deep powder days again this year. But I've really enjoyed a lot of your stories. I mean, obviously, you've had – you know, things that, that you've experienced on the PGA Tour that, you know, I'm never going to play the PGA Tour. I've, you know, I've come to that reality in my life, sadly, at almost 47 years old here. So, uh, but share with us just some of the, the, some of your experiences on tour and maybe share with us a story that, you know, that, I, that we've never heard about the PGA Tour or, or something that you've done or, or been a part of. Wow. Uh, there's so many stories, right? You could write books on it. Uh, I was just recounting a story. Uh, my first pro tournament ever was uh, when I was 18. I just turned 18 and I qualified for the U.S. Open. And I'd never, I was uh, just finished my freshman year in college. So I was literally, uh, should have been just a, uh, a senior in high school. Qualified for my first U.S. Open. It was at Cherry Hills there where you live, Andy, in Denver, Colorado. And after uh, the first round, I shot a one under par 70 at Cherry Hills and was tied for second. Only one person broke, uh, broke 70. And so, uh, the next day, uh, I got off to a pretty good start and I was two under after five holes and in the sole lead of the U S open. Saw my name up there at top of the leaderboard. And it's crazy, right? I mean, that's like, and so after two rounds, I, I fell back a little bit, but I was still only two shots off the lead after two rounds. And I got paired with Lee Trevino for the third round, two-time U.S. Open champion. And we get up on the first tee. Jim McKay is with ABC, and he's the roving reporter covering our group. And I never forget this. I was so nervous. I had never been so nervous in my life. I could, I don't think I could even brush my teeth. Of course, I didn't need to because I couldn't eat anything. And I'm getting up onto the first tee and I look at this scene unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, to, I'd played for, you know, in front of a couple hundred people before, but I got up and there were at least 40,000 people in the first hole. It was 15 deep around the tee. It was 10 deep down the fairway and it was 15 deep around the green. And I could tell it was just like an atmosphere unlike anything. And Lee Trevino's announced on the first tee he has the honor and, you know, he gets up there with his one iron and, <laughs> and Cole tops it off the first tee. I mean, it dribbles off the first tee. And this huge gasp of 40,000 people just went, because <gasps> the great Lee Trevino just topped it with a one iron off the tee. The best ball so, of all time. Right. You know? And so uh, I kind of pulled it in the left rough. And, and meanwhile, he's whacking away out of the long grass, finally gets it to the fairway, gets it on the green. <laughs> and I'm about... Oh, four feet off the green and only 20 feet from the hole. And I got this little chip and I'm, you know, really good. I played all my practice rounds with Johnny Miller and Billy Casper, my friends, and uh, they were marveling at how good and it kept beefing me up how good I was at this little shot. And so I get up full of confidence and look for the ball. Don't see the ball anywhere. Look down. There's my ball. I went right under it, completely whiffed it. <laughs> 
I've never done that before. So I kind of look at the lie a little bit, was wondering if anybody's watching, and then realize there's 40,000 people staring right at me, and uh, probably 300 million watching on television as all the red lights are on the camera. So I, I look at it, make another swing, no ball again. Look down, there it is, a double whiff. I went under it twice. Now I'm wondering, am I ever going to finish this hole? <laughs> and by now the ball's gone all the way down to the bottom. <clears throat> and I kind of chop it out for a gimme and, and, and make my six. And Lee made his six. And he turns to me and said, God almighty, man, can we start over? <laughs> <laughs> that was my first hole with Lee Trevino. We played many times. Quite a character, right? He was a character. What about some good stories from the booth? I know you spent a lot, a lot of time, you know, after your playing career, kind of, you know, uh, I don't want to say the tank, but maybe that's a too harsh, uh, as your mind was trying to do different things and your coaches yeah. were changing and everything in your golf swing, and you got into the booth. Tell us some fun stories about the about your announcing days. Well. Um, <laughs> Uh, I remember Constantino Roca. Just think, these things are just going to pop in my head, right? Uh, I'm co- I, I covered Amen Corner for 11 years. You know, I was there when Greg Norman hit it in the water. I was there when he hit it over the green and lost his ball. Um, but I, I, this popped into my mind. Constantino Roca's got a a, a putt. At 20 feet, he's right there next to the lead, and it's probably it's early on. I think it's second round of the Masters, and hits a it's a bad putt, and then he misses like the four footer coming back, and he he takes this wallop, I mean, and just whacks his foot, and you can just you can just I mean, it had to hurt so much. I mean, I'm wondering is his putter not bent, but I'm more concerned about his foot. And then he just kind of walks off as if nothing happened. And I remember my comment was, they must make some pretty darn good shoes in Italy. (laughs) 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 I was just, there's so many, right? Uh, I I can't even begin to, you know, 29 years in the booth. So it's, it was, it was a great, great fun. Favorite memory? Favorite memory. Um, Wow. I remember Fred Couples making the putt on the 17th hole at uh, uh, Robert Trent Jones Golf Club in Washington, D.C. in the 94 President's Cup. And I got to make that call. Uh, It's not often for a hole announcer to be able to make the final call to end the tournament in the championship. So that was a unique thing for me as an announcer, but he, he made birdie and it was the putt that won, won the cup for the United States. So that was pretty cool. Absolutely. How did you get used to, I remember spending a day with Mark Rolfing uh, here at Colorado golf club here. I guess it was the senior PGA championship was here. And, you know, I was in the booth on 16 with him and he was, obviously super cool just to be in, be in that room. And I'm, I'm just, you know, quiet, just shut up and don't say a word so that anybody can, out of air can hear you. But they gave us the headset and there's this, you know, there were two big screens. One was like split into probably 16 different feeds from all over the golf course. And then there was the live feed 
He had someone helping him there with some stats. But what I couldn't get used to was having a live feed of what's on the broadcast in one ear and the executive producer in the other ear. How how do you guys get used to doing that? Like I, I'm maybe I'm just not a good multitasker, but how did you get yeah. used to doing that? Well, first of all, I grew up with Mark Rolfing here in Pebble Beach and and uh, spent a lot of time with him. His brother was actually a classmate of mine at Robert Louis Stevenson. And then um, I also played in that senior PGA championship there at Colorado Golf Club in Parker. So I was yeah. there. Um, and But the, the answer, and, and it's a really interesting point, Andy, because when I first started broadcasting, Frank Trichinian, the legendary golf producer who was my boss, after the first time he put me in the booth, he calls me to his office after the show and he says, Clampett, tell me something. How come you can keep talking when I'm talking to you? He says, nobody knows how to do that when they're first starting broadcasting. And I said, sir, I'm a pilot. And I learned to fly an airplane because I had my instructor beside me and he was constantly talking to me while I was listening to ATC issue out instructions and I was talking to ATC. So I developed a way to be able to compartmentalize my brain and listen and talk at the same time. He said, interesting. So that's how and it, it's it's something that is a learned uh, thing. It's not easy to do. And different producers talk more than others. So it can it can vary quite a bit. Most producers are, are careful not to talk too much. But Frank, uh, when I was first going, Frank had to coach me a lot and I learned a ton from him. So and when he knew that I could continue to talk and I would fumble a few times, certainly, but he knew I could talk and keep thing going, even though he was talking to me. It's funny, uh, my Frank Trichinian story. This was with Steve Atherton. We were working at Westlake Country Club in Augusta, and we knew, you know, we knew who he was. And I, I'd never met him before, yeah. but you knew he was obviously Frank the man. Was remember there. Yeah, exactly right. So we, you know, there were always conversations. Well, he comes in the week of, you know, week of Augusta, and Steve was at the bag drop. Got him in the. I think it was the CEO of Cobra. Was it uh, Mark something at that time? This is mid, you know, mid nineties. Anyway, Steve throws both their bags on a cart, and Mr. Trichinian says, hey, Steve, you forgot my, my, my dozen balls. And Steve ran back to get the dozen balls real quick. Well, Mark gets in the, in the driver's seat and takes off. Steve hadn't done the cart straps. And both bags on the concrete. And, you know, we were expecting Mr. Trichinian to go nuts, and he was super, you know, super cool about it. But it was uh, one of my more humorous <laughs> moments at Westlake Country Club. And Steve, you know, Steve Atherton's his face. And Steve, you, know, you guys know Steve at all. He's a perfectionist and a, just a great person. But uh, anyway, comical to watch. You know, here's one of the top guys at CBS and how nice he was, too, after that had happened. But <laughs> I'll never forget where we played there at Westlake Country Club together. And you know, we had a match, and I was up on all the on all the bets, and I got like a three footer on the last hole, and I was expecting him to say, you know, that's good. I kind of looked at him. He goes, "Put it." <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, I, you know, one of the things in, in getting to know you and spending time with you that I I never knew. Obviously, I you know listened to you on TV for years and years and years growing up. I didn't realize how close you and Arnie were. 
Would you would you share some? And I'm a huge Arnie fan, as, as I think most people are. Yeah. Uh, would you share some Arnie stories with us? Well, I, I don't want to over-exaggerate. I wasn't like his best friend, but we had a good relationship, a, a friendship. And um, you know, I was 17 years a client of IMG and Mark McCormick. Um, first met Arnold because he used to come down here to Quail Lodge and stay as a guest of Ed Haver. And, of course, a pretty popular story when I was 12 years old and the U.S. Open was here and I was watching him and shagging balls uh, next to him on the range of quail. But after one of the rounds, I didn't have a ride home, and I saw him climbing into his limousine, and I went and stopped him, and Mark McCormick was there, and Ed Brown was there. And I said, Mr. Palmer, are you, you happening? Are you going to Quail Lodge by chance? And he kind of looked at me, paused, and said, well, 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 yes, I am. And I said, any chance I can catch a ride with you? And he kind of looked at Mark McCormick and Mark McCormick went and Ed Brown went and Arnold put his arm around me and said, sure, kid, come on. And so he gave me a ride home <laughs> and his chauffeur driven limousine <laughs> from the Pebble Beach Pro Shop it was perfect. Uh, but we became friends after that. And uh, uh, my stepfather and Arnold were good friends. So there was friendships in the family. We'd have dinner together occasionally. Um, one of the things, he, he'd always do things for me, you know, exemptions to Bay Hill. He would constantly be helping me out until my game was, was such a wreck that you know, it wasn't anywhere near deserving of one. So, um, But one of the uh, uh, things that was really cool, he helped me get a, an exemption when I was looking to play on the champions tour. I was 49. I was looking for some events to play in. So I just threw my name in the hat for a sponsor's invite to Bob Hope. And he was on the selection committee. So he, he kind of nudged them to invite me to play. And at dinner, uh, of course he wouldn't say anything like that, right? He wouldn't ever say, I helped you get in. I found this out from other sources, right? Cause, uh, but at dinner, um, Kitty comes over to the table and says, uh, um, you know, Arnold, uh, and I just sat down. She said, Arnold would love to play golf with you sometime if you're ever in Orlando. So, you know, I, of course, I went over and talked to him. And he said, yeah, he says, whenever you come to Orlando, give me a call. So I did. And we ended up going out and playing. And I think he was 79 at the time or 80. And... We had the best time. It was such a memorable round. And then um, just before he died, I, I some friends of mine shared with me that uh, his days are short. If you want to go see him, you should go see him. So I uh, went and saw him, spent the whole afternoon with him. And it was an amazing, amazing time. He died four weeks later. But... Um, I went back to my hotel room that night and I wrote down everything about our conversation and cause I didn't want to forget a thing. He was just one of those great human beings that, uh, all of us have been, whether we know it or not, we've all been influenced by Arnold Palmer mm -hmm. and the way we treat others, uh, the way we sign autographs, the way we look people in the eye. There was a genuine, love for other people that he had that was contagious 
and it made him the popular golf figure that he was. Plus, he was a hell of a player, too. Yeah. It was fun. I had the chance to play the Troll Country Club, I don't know, probably five, six years ago. And it was the year after I had played uh, Jack's Places, you know, Scioto, and then played at Mirfield uh, when I was in Columbus, Ohio. And, and interesting to see Jack's upbringing with the, you know, more affluent, I would say, upbringing. He had the Country Club membership. Um, then you go look at, at the Trove, and that's kind of a dog track. I mean, yeah. it really is not a great golf course, but obviously an incredible experience to just be in that environment see where he came from and then walk around the men's locker room and see the pictures with kings and presidents and actors and just the history was in- incredible but just very obviously very different upbringing than, than Jack and you could see it in the golf courses as, as well you know Arnold knew and this is this is this is so Arnold so every year when Arnold would come to either play the Bing Crosby or play the US Open when it was at Pebble he would stay at Quail Lodge and he would go play nine holes with Ed Haber, the owner. And it was, you know, you just think of that today when one of the players on the tour, when somebody who invites them to stay at their resort, right, and pays for their room and so forth, how many pros would do something like that in return? Uh, you just don't see it today. No. And and that was Arnold. He was so personable. It was about relationships. That's what really drove him. And he was the best at it. And, um, you know, he never really he, it, it would take a little prodding to get him to really speak his mind. But once he trusted you as a friend and knew you weren't going out somewhere to, to spill the beans, he 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 was smart. He knew so much. He had great insight into a lot of things. I'll never forget some of the uh, closed door uh, player back in the early '80s. Arnold was still on the policy board with the tour as a player, and yet so respected, right? And we had some closed door meetings between the commissioner and and the players. And I'll never forget Arnold. He would just be really quiet. And then the players would just say, Arnold, what do you think about this? And then he'd get up and speak. And every time he spoke, it was like you could hear a pin drop. And the players, the respect that the players had for him. Certainly, absolutely not shocking to hear to hear that, that the players had all the ultimate respect for Arnold. What about, so you've had a heck of a career. Like, are, are there any... Um, like, what are you most proud of about your career? <sighs> That's a great question. I, you know, pride is a, is a dangerous thing. But I think that, uh, you know, going back to one of your original questions, why would you leave teach? Why would you leave playing a career of playing? Because a lot of people considered what I was doing on the Champions Tour was, was pretty good. You know, seven top fives and um, kind of knocking at the door winning. Why would you just quit the Champions Tour? And the answer to that question is I felt like there were a lot of people to replace me on the Champions Tour. Champions Tour didn't need Bobby Clampett. But I felt like my biggest help or contribution to the game is going to be an instruction. And I felt like I could help the game more 
doing that. And so that's that's why I really left. And that's where I felt my purpose was. And when you feel your purpose, it, you don't want to go against that. You want to follow your purpose. You want to follow where your heart is going. And to have the support that I've had from my wife to go through that, what we've done as a as a business together um, is pretty cool. And to to see it grow, uh, your help with us has been immeasurable. And you know we're only. Gosh, we're really only, I've been retired from the Champions Tour for six years, so we're still young. We're just really getting getting going. And I have no idea where it's going to end up, but uh, I'm really proud of what we as a team, all of us uh, at the team of Impact Zone Golf have put together and what we're in the process of, of truly helping change the game. That's been fun. I've, I've really enjoyed helping you guys, and it's uh, I think we're just getting to a spot where we're making some serious progress, which is cool. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to have gotten to know you and, and help the business as well. It's been, uh, been a lot of fun and certainly something that we can uh, have a significant impact and help change the game yeah. and help get people playing more golf and grow the game. I, I'm probably, you know, sentimental about it, but I really believe strongly that we have got to deliver higher quality instruction across the entire industry if we're going to see this game grow and stop the you know the constant leaky bucket and get people to stick with the game and, and play more for sure. And and what the reality is that clubs that have a really good teaching program, the benefit that it is to the club. And you know, as a former president of the proponent group and what Lauren Anderson has done there and the proponent group study that was done is fantastic. Uh, that yep. really talks about the value back to a club of a good teaching program and yep. keeping, you know, a hundred percent of lesson takers retain their membership and that a top end teaching program can can reap a six x or more uh, income dividend back to the club. So yep. if you've got a, a, a an instructional program generating a quarter of a million dollars a year, that can be one and a half million plus back to the club in the form of new memberships and uh, more rounds of golf plays. I mean, people that are playing well. All of it. They want to be at the club. They want to be playing more. They want to play tournaments. They're inviting their friends. They're getting more involved. They're buying more in the shop. They're having more dinners there. They get involved more. You know, how many students, I'm sure you're the same way, Andy. I've had so many students come to me and say, you know, just for the first time and say, Bobby, you're my last resort. I've been to so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. My game's so bad. My friends don't even want to play with me anymore. I'm about to give up my membership. If you can't fix me, I'm 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 afraid I'm going to have to quit. And golly, that's 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 tough. I got that text message just before we began. It was a gentleman I've been teaching all summer long, and he's he's done. He's like, this is my last year. I'm I'm quitting the game. And I just I, I hate playing golf. I and it's he just just sent me a text message. Shot 95. Not great by your standards. This is the first thing you said, which, you know, 95, you're right, not great. But the uh, last thing you said, I had so much fun. Thank you, Coach. Right? That's To me, that's what we do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> to, to keep a golfer from quitting <laughs> just because of the frustration, which is uh, good to see. I love that. And and you empower. You know, this is the thing. I, I've actually witnessed coaches 
strip students of their power to learn and assess and and create a psychological dependence on the instructor to make a decision of what they did in their swing. Right. But when they start to understand impact and and what caused the ball to go there, they start to become their own coach. And when coaches empower and share this with students, it empowers them. And then they start having a lot more fun when they're out on the golf course. Yeah, I, I, I call it that. Uh, just wanting to self-diagnose accurately. Right. All the stuff that you think is going on. But if you can accurately self-diagnose and then fix it on the fly, like you're well on your way to becoming a better golfer. No, I, I always say it's it's if you don't assess your missed shot correctly, you have exactly a hundred percent chance of not fixing your problem. It's like Absolutely. if you have something wrong with your car and it's a, um, the number three cylinder is bad, and they go in there and they look at it and they say, you know what, uh, you got a bad radiator. You're not going to fix your problem. You may get a nice new radiator, but you've still got the bad cylinder. And you got exactly 100% chance of not fixing your problem if they don't assess it right. And, you know, how many people shank the ball and think the club face is open and they start changing their club face to, to close the club face up when that's – and they got exactly a zero percent chance. Got of no chance. You got no chance. I see it all the time. I got this laundry list of things they're thinking about, and not a single one of them is going to help their golf swing. I, I love starting lessons with that. So I'm curious, in knowing what we worked on last time, I asked the question. I'm curious what you're working on, and I can't tell you how frequently I was like, I never said any of that. And and on the on the three things I left you with, none of the three things we left you with were in your list of what you're working on. And, like, and what are you doing right now? And that drives me. I had this yesterday, Andy, you know, with a student that I shared with you that was, you know, three degrees, three to four degrees out to in and a rearward swing bottom. And I said, how are you trying to fix it? And he says, well, you know, at the top, I'm trying to get my right shoulder instead of coming over with my right shoulder. I'm trying to get my right shoulder back, stay behind the ball with the right shoulder. I'm like, That's what's moving your swing bottom back. Let's get back to load lag and workhorse. Come on. And I said, where did you get this information? He said, well, I got an email from, you know, and this, and I, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's stick with the process here. Forget about it. Cancel your subscription now. Let's keep this thing simple. Yep. One step at a time, you clutter your mind up with a bunch of needless garbage that's only going to drive your game right down the tubes. What do you have when you have amateurs teaching amateurs? More amateurs. Give them a lot more amateurs. <laughs> Not very good amateurs either. <laughs> so I know we're getting to be sucking up your time here. I appreciate the uh, the hour. I'm uh, I'm personally curious. You've got one day to live. Are we going to do it on the golf course or on the mountain? Ooh, tough questions. What's the snow conditions? Well, of course it's a two it's a two foot powder day like we had oh, last okay. year. <laughs> Absolutely, we're going skiing. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> you got you, you have to. I love your story. When you were at BYU, would you maybe wrap it up with a story about your time at BYU? How you were not allowed to ski once golf season was nearing. Like there's no skiing. Would you would you share your coach story? So Coach Tucker, of course, uh, legendary golf coach at Brigham Young University, Hall of Fame coach was also, a lot of people didn't realize, for 38 years, the director of the ski school of the university. 
So he taught Robert Redford how to ski. And in return, Robert Redford gave him 10 season passes for the golf team. Now, the ski team only got five season passes, but the golf team got 10 at Sundance Ski Resort that Bob Redford owned. So uh, well, that was one of the nice little caveats. And Coach knew that I skied. And on my recruit trip, we even had dinner with, with Bob Redford and his daughter up at the treehouse at Sundance. And so when I did come to school there, uh, Coach and I skied a lot together. But after January 15th, that was a drop dead, no more skiing, guys. It's time to focus on golf. So it was like mid-February, and we had had an epic snowstorm in Utah, like unlike any. It was four straight days of just dumping snow, six feet of new snow in the mountains. And it's a Saturday morning, no school. I wake up at 7 a.m. and I'm just looking outside and I'm going, let's see, if I go up there right now, is he going to know that I'm there? Uh, how can I manage this? Um, this is really tough. All of a sudden the phone rings and he called me Clabby Bumpet. That was my nickname. He says, Clabber? I'm picking you up in 30 minutes. I go, oh, shit, he's got my goat. He knows I was getting ready to head up there. I said, where are we going, coach? We're going skiing. <laughs> I said, I'll be ready. <laughs> and we got up there. We were the only ones on the mountain. The general manager, his best friend, opened up the mountain for us and we had un endless runs. There were about 10 of us. Endless runs in bottomless powder. And it was just epic. Nobody fell. Nobody stopped the entire day. It was crazy. Love it. Good stuff. Really good stuff. a perfect day. Any other things we should have asked you? Whew. You know, we, you and I could sit here and talk for about 10 days and not be bored. Mm -hmm. So. There's so much I've learned from you, Andy, and there's so much to talk about golf in the industry and teaching and, yeah. I, I enjoy our conversations, and they're even better when they're over one of your bottles of wine. <laughs> we'll give a little, a little plug to Clampett Cellars. Little plug to Clampett Cellars. Fantastic Reds, uh, in my opinion, are, are the best for anybody out there who's interested in wine as well. We could probably have another call about wine, but uh, I've enjoyed sampling some of the Clampett Cellars over the last few years. So thank you for turning me on to your wines as well. Yeah, I enjoy sampling wine with you for sure. It's a, you know, wine and golf kind of go together, and, and skiing by that matter, right? You know, they all work, they all work yes, together. Absolutely. Almost all my students like a little glass of red wine in the evening, so it's good. Definitely. Very. Well, thank well, you, sir, for the time. I very much appreciate you spending the hour. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, this has been one heck of a conversation. I've learned a lot. Bobby, thank you so much for your time with joining us. Andy, thank you for all the questions and the help with the episode. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Bobby Clampett, Andy Hiltz, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Elevation Podcast Series presented by the Colorado PGA. My pleasure. Thank you, Holly. Thank you, Andy. Thank you both for what you do for the yeah. game.